As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. To salute those frontline healthcare workers, it's what motivated us to do it and what kept us motivated throughout those several weeks of flyovers that we did. And when you would see a photo of them all in their scrubs, all their masks on, lined up on top of a parking ramp at the hospital they worked at, arms in the air, like waving as we went over, or you saw people cry, like people were brought to tears because they've been under so much stress uh, that it was just really a display of hope that they hadn't seen in a while. From the Fox 6 studios, this is definitely Milwaukee. Conversations with the movers and shakers that put our slice of Wisconsin on the map in the worlds of entertainment, business, sports, and more. Major Michelle Curran is a Wisconsin native who entered pilot training with no flight experience, but is now breaking the mold as just the fifth female pilot in the history of the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds. From her home base in Las Vegas, Major Curran discussed how the coronavirus pandemic shifted their mission to performing inspirational flyovers for frontline workers in cities all across America. Plus, what is it actually like to withstand up to nine Gs while pulling off harrowing maneuvers? Her coolest experiences so far, from the Super Bowl to flying over her home state, and how she hopes to inspire the next generation of young pilots. It's a conversation that covers a lot of ground, or air, I guess. So let's get ready for takeoff with Major Michelle Kerr. Thrilled to be joined here by Major Michelle Kern, a member of the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds team, and I'm sure she will say many times a proud Wisconsinite as well. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, e, e virtually here. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's rare that I get to talk to a podcast, and then it's even rarer that I get to talk to my fellow Wisconsinites. So it's always it's always good to reach back to you guys. One of my questions was going to be uh, how soon it would take someone either meeting you, walking in your house, something like that, to know that the Wisconsin roots are, are still there. Is that something you still carry with you, even though you're based out in the Southwest now? Uh, yeah. Well, my love for cheese has definitely not dissipated <laughs> at all. But I still, despite not living there in like 10 years or more than that, even I'm getting old, uh, <laughs> my accent is still there with certain words. So people call me out there like, are you from Wisconsin or Minnesota? Maybe North Dakota? Somewhere in that upper Midwest, right? Exactly. They can never quite pinpoint it, but they've all seen Fargo. So they're like, it sounds kind of like that, but different. <laughs> the Coen brothers can be thanked for uh, everyone knowing Thanks, that yeah. accent, right? Um, we'll get into a lot of stuff over the, the next little bit, but I wanted to start with this for folks who did get to see you and see the Thunderbirds at the air show in Milwaukee last year. I know you're in a slightly different role this year, but what would people have seen you do? What was your role specifically last year? And then what you get to do now for the demonstration team? Yeah, so I'm number five, the lead solo now, and the solos are kind of a unique position where we actually change numbers and it's always planned that way. So your first year on the team, which was last year for me when I came down to or up to Milwaukee to do the show, uh, was number six, the opposing solo. 
Um, so I had a number five at that point who was experienced. He was on his second year. So he kind of led our element, like our two jets, number five and number six. Um, and now I'm doing that this year. So I kept my same maneuvers that I did last year. So if you came out to the show, you would have seen me on the far left side of the Delta, which is when all six aircraft come together. I stay with that left side, luckily, because it'd be very traumatic, I feel like, at this point to switch sides something. <laughs> um, but my maneuvers also say the same. So I did like the max G turn, which is awesome out over the water there. Uh, the vertical rolls where you go straight up and you spiral up into the sky. So uh, high alpha as well as another signature one, the really slow uh, oh, move cool. from right to left down the show line with the smoke coming out. So I get to do all of that this year uh, as well. But now I've taken over as the lead solo. So I'm kind of in charge of all the timing, um, the communication between our element and the diamond. So myself and Thunderbird one, as well as myself and the new number six, the new uh, opposing solo. So uh, the big thing, my five is upside down. If you see that. <laughs> I did see that. Yeah. So that's because as number five, you're upside down for all the combined maneuvers. So the Calypso and the reflection where you have the two jets that look like they're stacked on top of each other. Uh, the more experienced person, the second year, pilot um, number five is always the one that's inverted for that. Gotcha. And I'm certainly going to ask you about some of the movements and just how technical things get with that. Um, in general, this is such a unprecedented time, as we keep saying on the morning news and everywhere. For you, how has the pandemic affected you guys? I'm going to ask about some of the America's Strong flyovers, but I understand you're starting to get back to some of the practice for what would be a normal show schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just like everyone else, we kind of had the rug pulled out from under us. We were actually all packed. Our advanced pilot had already left uh, to go to our first air show this season back in March. We had our, our suitcases packed. We were at the squadron that morning when all of this was starting to escalate pretty quickly. Wow. And they're like, all right, we're going to delay 24 hours to see what's happening uh, before we send, you know, 65 people with eight aircraft and everything down to Texas, which is where our first show was. And we're based out of Las Vegas. So we were here at home. And then that 24 hours turned into all your air shows are canceled for the beginning of the year. And then it turned into your quarantining in your house and working from home and you're homeschooling your kids. And it was just, just like everyone else. It was what just happened. Um, so for us, that that's a big point in our, our year is that first transition from practicing all the new people getting spun up, learning their positions, getting certified by a four-star general, getting his blessing. You're like, you guys are good to go on the road, be the face of the air force to, is there a show season? Uh, maybe a little, maybe not at all. We don't even know that now uh, yet. So that's when we took a few weeks where we were at home just like everyone else. Um, and then we slowly started to think about what we could do with the team. We you know, already have all these people that need to maintain training currency. We need to keep flying. We can't sit for too long or we lose a lot of that proficiency. We already had all the money allocated for air shows. So it's like, what can we do to kind of boost the morale of the American people with these six red, white, and blue aircraft? And that's where, like you mentioned, America Strong kind of started. Yeah. And you guys did uh, just amazing job traveling across the country and doing those aerial salutes, as you were calling them, to those frontline workers, those healthcare workers and first responders really on the front lines of that fight. I know you're, you're really active on social media. I'd be curious if you saw any uh, particular reaction, any story that came back to you guys from the ground of just what those meant to you and if, that, if there's something that kind of hit you in terms of what you guys were bringing to so many people around the country. Yeah, there were, there were so many. It's like really the power of social media that we get that immediate feedback after we land. All of us would have just tons of things we had been tagged in and messages and 
it was just so rewarding. Um, those missions were tough for us. It was a lot of coordination, a lot of planning, and honestly, very difficult flying. You'd think that they were easier than an air show, but actually it was a lot harder. We can talk about why uh, later if you want. But to get back from sometimes a seven-hour flight for some of those multi-city, uh, multiple air refuelings, um, which is a long time in a small cockpit, and see these videos was awesome. So there's a couple that stuck out. Uh, the first one we did was here in Vegas. We did a fairly long flyover all over the city since it's our home city that was kind of testing the waters, testing our skill as pilots, what that kind of flying would be like, all the coordination required. And there were kids especially who had been you know, in their homes for six weeks at that point, hadn't seen their friends, maybe just their parents and their siblings. And they were out in their backyards and like their parents would take a video of us coming over and their kids were just jumping up and down, like screaming in excitement. They were just so excited to see something different, yeah. um, which the interactions with them is always my favorite part of the job. Uh, and then there were definitely obviously the healthcare workers. So that was the whole point of doing this uh, initially was to salute those frontline healthcare workers. And when you would see a photo of them all in their scrubs, all their masks on, lined up on top of a parking ramp at the hospital they worked at, you know, arms in the air, like waving as we went over, or you saw people cry, like people were brought to tears because they've been under so much stress uh, that it was just really a display of hope that they hadn't seen in a while. Um, and then you had veterans who are, a lot of them are older and, you know, high risk population. And I had one specific story where a veteran's daughter messaged me and she had taken her father out to see us. I think it was in Colorado Springs. I can't remember for sure. Um, and he was in his late eighties, early nineties. And he saw us fly over and was really moved by that. And he ended up actually passing away from COVID uh, in the following weeks. So it's stories like that are, are incredible and it's what motivated us to do it and what kept us motivated throughout those several weeks of flyovers that we did. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. You, you mentioned some of the technical side. What is it about flying over cities like that? And I imagine just kind of different flight patterns that, that changes so much for you guys. Yeah. So what I didn't realize going into it is how good we get at our specific demo and how you know exactly what the boss is going to do when you're flying on the wing, because we've done it so many times when he, you know what direction turn is coming next. And when he calls left turn, you know what maneuver you're setting up for, how rapidly he's going to pull G's, how like his bank angle, you just get used to exactly what you need to do to match that. Um, these were so long. The one in Colorado was the longest, I think, and that was 350 miles of low altitude flying. So especially for the solos, we're not used to staying in that formation for that long. Yeah, you get to so go was, do your own fun things for a little bit, right? Exactly. About the time your arm starts to go numb, okay, good. I get to break away from the formation and I can shake my arm out. Um, the diamond's not so lucky. They have to stay locked in there for a lot longer than we do. But it was an adjustment um, for us with that. But then you, you couldn't memorize the flight path just because it was so complex and you're staring at the jet next to you. You can't look around and be like, oh, we're going to do you know a left 270 next. Or you can't look down at a map um, like the boss is. Uh, as we did that. And so it'd be like left turn. You're like, is this a 30 degree check turn or are we doing a 360? And so sometimes you wouldn't know what to expect. So you always felt like you were playing catch up with the maneuvering of the aircraft, especially being on the end of the whip kind of out there for myself and for six. Um, so it just took some practice to get used to that kind of flying. It was just so much different. We did not realize how difficult it would wow. be. 
I think that, well, that speaks first of all to the, the skill and training that you guys have too. And then maybe the close quarters that even if people have seen an air show, they don't quite understand just, just how tight you guys are in those formations. Yeah. There's not a lot of room for air and we want to present, you know, a good, a good picture to the people on the ground. And in a show, you know exactly where those people are and you can set an optic for show center. So, you know, when you have a second to loosen it up slightly where no one can see that, but on those flyovers, you're constantly passing over people and there's being photos, videos taken at all different points. So inevitably you would land and you'd see all these awesome photos and then you'd see the couple where you're like, dang it, I was wide there. That was like the two seconds I was wide in, you know, 20 minutes of being in formation, but someone got a great photo of it. Um, but you know, the people on the ground, they don't care if you're a little bit wide, they still loved it. And it was still an awesome uh, mission that we did. Yeah, I'm sure most of those people didn't realize you were like a hair off or something like that. You can, you can rest easy on that front. We're harsh on ourselves for good reason. <laughs> yeah, as you should be. Um, I'd love to get into a little bit of your background too. Medford, Wisconsin, right? That's the yep. hometown growing up. Yep. Um, one of the things that struck me doing some research for this, and I don't know whether this is, is rare or not, but that you really didn't have much of any flying experience before going into pilot training. Is that, is that more common maybe than people would guess? Or what was it like going in with basically no experience in a cockpit, but knowing that's what you wanted to end up doing? Yeah, uh, it was challenging. So I think the majority of people that pursue aviation in the military probably have at least a little bit of civilian time, you know, some time in a Cessna growing up, or they were part of Civil Air Patrol or something like that. Uh, growing up in Medford, it's a small town, as you probably know, it's about 4,000 people. So there weren't a lot of options for that there. And I'm sure there were things or there are things now, but I didn't even know about them. And my parents didn't know about them. I didn't grow up in a family that uh, had any aviation background or really much military background uh, since my grandpa back in World War II, but nothing more recent than that. Um, but I was a, like, a thrill seeker. I loved roller coasters. I wanted to travel. I wanted to live all over the world. I wanted something challenging, something physically and mentally demanding. And so I kind of joined the military initially through ROTC, just to generally pursue that. And then based on all of those things that I was looking for when I started to explore career fields, it seemed like pilot, uh, pursuing a pilot slot fit that the best. And so that's what I went after. And again, the more I looked into that, it seemed like pursuing flying fighters fit that the most, um, the, the whole roller coaster thing, thrill seeker, <laughs> challenging, all of that. And people always think, you know, I was probably like a five-year-old that saw the Thunderbirds and was like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot someday. I wish I had that great story and that, you know, focused the entire time, but it was really just baby steps. Um, and I went through the wickets to get to more and more specialized and more and more competitive parts of the Air Force. And here I am wearing a blue suit flying for the Thunderbirds. But I would highly recommend people have some sort of aviation experience before uh, taking on initial flight screening and pilot training. And I think I just got lucky that A, I had no issues with motion sickness or anything like that. And B, I learned quickly and was decent at it as I went. Um, but it was a very steep learning curve at the beginning. I think, honestly, that very first month of uh, initial flight screening is what it's called. It's out in Colorado. It's just a small civilian style aircraft. It's light, it's fat, or not very fast, it's slow, very slow compared to the S-16. <laughs> but that was incredibly difficult because I had no concepts to fall back on at all. So all of that was brand new to me. I think that was more difficult than the follow-on training, um, going on to fly 
the F-16 because it was more gradual. That was the steepest jump um, that I had in just learning the basics of aerodynamics, even just systems of the aircraft. I had no mechanical background. Like, I think there were some people that were really into cars and they could kind of transfer the concepts to like oil systems and stuff onto the aircraft and it made sense to them. And I had none of that. I was like, I don't understand how this works at all. Honestly, that's really cool. I imagine people listening will be kind of astounded by that, but it is a, a sign that if that's your dream, you can still pursue it, whether or not you have some of the legs up along the way that, that other people may have had. Absolutely. It, it was a grind. There were many points there. I was like, I might be in over my head. Um, but I remember just working late at night. I'd still be up studying, waking up early. I'd be studying before class started. And I was, you know, just trying to tread water at that point, but I made it through and then it, it got easier as I kind of caught up that initial ground. Then all your classmates are in the same boat as you at that point. You're all just trying to drink from a fire hose is what we compare it to. So did that add to the feeling a little bit once you did find out you were going to be one of the Thunderbirds, knowing kind of the journey that you had been on to get to what is really the pinnacle for the Air Force? It's still surreal. Even if you had asked me after I've been flying the F-16 for, you know, four or five years after the end of my first assignment, which um, was out in Japan, if I was going to be a Thunderbird someday, I would have been like, no, probably not. I, <laughs> there's a misconception on what we call the gray world, the, the combat side of the Air Force, all the gray jets, um, of how the team operates. And, and I think we jokingly make fun of the team as you know the combat pilots uh, and it goes back and forth but then you start to progress into your career where your friends start to apply for the team and they end up being the people there um, that are just a year or two older than you and you're like oh they were just a normal <laughs> f-16 pilot before they applied maybe that's something i could do um, and you get more perspective on it but when you're a young fighter pilot you still don't really understand what the thunderbirds do or yeah if it's challenging or not challenging, you're just like, man, their flight suits are really tight. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask some of the differences between the Thunderbirds and as a demo team and, and combat flying as well. And um, I guess I'll start with this, just the maneuvers. Does that translate from what you would do in a combat situation to some of the things that people see at air shows? Or it's kind of my understanding those are pretty different movements. Yeah. So I think the left hand, right hand flying on the Thunderbirds is hands down the most difficult I've done in my career by a lot. Um, the only maneuvering that you do in a combat squadron that's kind of similar is what we call BFM, which is like dog fighting. Um, Cause it's close. You're reacting to another aircraft. It's high G. Um, it's kind of similar, but the precision that we get down to on the team takes a ton of practice coming in. You're, you're not very good at it at all, even though you're a very proficient fighter pilot already that transition is, is pretty difficult and we use the rudder a ton. So with our feet um, for yaw, which is left and right with the nose of the aircraft. And honestly in the F-16 before coming to the team, I mean, I never use the, like you don't ever use the rudder. There's no reason to everyone would be like, don't use it. Like, what are you doing? Why are you using the rudder? Um, and now it's constantly like every single story I'm using that for with, um, away from number two as we got gotcha. formation but it's, just, it's way different huh, but yeah there's basic concepts that transition over that's really interesting though um mentally I, I know obviously in both situations the the focus has to be just at, at top notch but 
Is there kind of a, a different switch in your head when you're flying a combat mission? I know you have a lot of hours in that as well. I believe more than 160, including time over Afghanistan. Is there just kind of a different feel when you are flying in a combat situation versus even a demonstration? Yeah, they're, they're just so different from each other. Um, the combat side, you're really focused on tactics. The, the actual physical flying of the aircraft is pretty easy. A lot of times you're actually going to have the autopilot set and be in a wheel, you know, holding over an area that you need to observe or that you've been called to target something or whatever it is. And what your brain power is really going towards is communicating with all the guys on the ground, making sure you're all on the same page, and then operating all your sensors. So you have your radar, your targeting pod, like all that stuff is pretty complicated. And just to keep track of what they're talking about, what you're seeing, make sure that you're on this right target. And then obviously the repercussions, if you're making a mistake, there are very high. I mean, they're high in the demo as well, but I think every person's worst nightmare as a combat pilot is to target the wrong thing. Um, so there's just a lot of seriousness that comes with those flights for sure. Uh, and they're really long. So the, everyone, I think, that doesn't have a good perspective on it, thinks that you deploy and it's just action all the time. Um, it's definitely a lot of really long, boring flights with the autopilot set, like hoping that you're going to get to do something and eating some snacks and then not getting to do anything and then going and landing like six hours later. Wow. But those long periods of boredom can be interrupted with extremely stressful moments uh, unexpectedly. And you don't necessarily know when those are coming. Um, yeah. so. so just flipping that switch immediately has to be pretty tough. You got you to be ready. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'll switch gears a little bit to the Milwaukee Auto Show, or Air Show, excuse me, last year when you guys were in town. Was that your, your first time performing over Wisconsin, right, as, as the demonstration team? It was. And uh, this is not even biased. It was one of my favorite show sites. I just love Milwaukee so much. It's such a fun city. And I hadn't been there, honestly, since I was a kid. Hmm. So to come back as an adult where I like could go to breweries and just check out all the cool little restaurants and coffee shops and go out on a boat and have some wine. It's just such a different experience than it was when I came with my parents. Uh, the downtown area has changed so much and it's such a cool city now. Yeah, even since I moved here about four years ago for the job, it's just blown up even in that time as well. Um, I imagine it's a little bit like when an athlete goes back to their hometown, they got to get extra tickets for all their friends and family, oh, yeah. things like that. What was that side of things like for you, just trying to make sure you could see as many of those people as you could and what was a still pretty limited schedule? Yeah, so that happens at a lot of show sites. Um, it's, I love my family and I love when they can come watch me fly, but it is definitely stressful trying to, like, <laughs> it's like herding cats. Uh, to get them their tickets, to try to make sure they get in the right parking and all of that, and they get the seats, whatever. It's it's always controlled chaos um, when you have a bunch of family members or friends come to the show, but it is super cool that they get to see it. My parents are like groupies. They ended up at like half the shows last year, and I know they planned on doing the same thing uh, this year, but um, they're super proud, obviously, and I think a lot of people that barely knew me or just knew of me really were excited to see someone from Wisconsin flying over, even if they weren't my personal friends or family. So that's how it's cool to have that connection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there any one thing that you kind of made sure you had to do or had to get when you were back in Wisconsin? Oh, cheese curds. <laughs> For sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. My parents actually showed up. They swung by and picked up some fresh ones at a place on their drive-in and <laughs> 
standard parents, they went overkill and they got like 10 pounds. So I just had <laughs> like every color and flavor. And I was just like, we can't eat all of these <laughs> reference the tight show suits. So I started giving them to like other friends that were in town that had never had them. And everyone's like, these are amazing. You're like, yeah, we don't mess around here. <laughs> and why do they squeak? That's weird. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of strange, but that's all right. <laughs> um, I know you get asked about this a lot, being one of the few female pilots to ever be in the Thunderbirds and, and currently the only one in the demonstration team. Um, I'm going to try to ask something a little bit different here, but for you, I know you've said, uh, especially with the kids at shows, that's really the most inspiring for you. You love seeing, whether it's a little boy or a little girl, and kind of showing them what they can be. Have you thought, now that you are in your second year of this, kind of what you hope a, a legacy or a lasting impact of your time with the Thunderbirds will be going forward? Yeah, so I'm, I'm the fifth uh, woman to fly for the team. It has been a few years, and people often forget that there's been others and ask if I'm the first, and I think that's because of how much we've shifted to social media over the last five years. So I have so much more visibility and interaction with people like direct messages, comment, like they can talk directly to me and I can respond. And that wasn't ever really a thing before. So I'm in a unique position with that ability to just really inspire people one-on-one, -on -one, which of course flying the demo and then just knowing that I'm part of the team inspires a lot of people, but it's just really cool to hear people's personal stories, uh, get to interact with them and then just kind of grow the knowledge that this is this is a thing you can do this job as a woman and even if you're not doing this job i think it just empowers a lot of people to pursue something that they thought was unattainable or scary or you know difficult um and that there's a lot of perceived barriers that aren't necessarily there but people just kind of put on themselves yeah. um and kind of handcuff themselves to these roles that they don't necessarily have to stay within i was going to ask you have you have you come across anything that makes becoming a fighter pilot harder as a female than a male? Because I would imagine not. It's just kind of the awareness that, that there actually aren't those barriers there. Yeah, so I think like, institutionally, the Air Force is trying really hard to recruit more women. I mean, they are well aware of the lack of diversity, uh, especially in, in fighter aircraft, and what that brings to the table to bring you know a bigger applicant pool and a different perspective and all of those things. So they're definitely aware of that and trying to promote it. Um, so I didn't face, you know, any, what people imagine when they think of discrimination or barriers is someone like being like, you can't do this, you're a woman, or you're going to bust this ride, I'm going to make you fail this ride because I don't like flying with you because you're a girl or whatever. I think it used to be like that more. I think that part's kind of gone, but there's still some difficulties that come with being the only woman in a squadron. Like, it's not anything that people intentionally do, but stuff like, having flight gear that fits, having the things you need to go to the bathroom in the aircraft, <laughs> or just being the only one. It's, I, the guys I work with are amazing and they're some of my best friends, but it is nice to have women that you work with that can relate to things that are, are you just go through that are different. Sure. Um, so to not have that has been challenging at points. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting, and I really like that I'm seeing a lot more uh, women come up into uh, flying fighters as the years go on. There's definitely still not very many of us, but I think people are becoming more aware uh, that, it is, that it is a thing that, that's out there.
you mentioned the social media and I highly encourage anyone listening to follow you, especially Instagram. It's fantastic seeing both just the amazing shots from inside the cockpit, but then you really do get into a lot of your personal life and some of the things that you've gone through, some great backstories in terms of your career as well. So um, do you want to throw out the handle actually? So I make sure I get it right. Yeah, it's Mace T-Bird 5 and okay. an underscore between the Mace and the T-Bird and the T-Bird and the 5. But if you just search Mace T-Bird 5, you'll find me. Is that something that um, I don't know, it took some getting used to or you had to kind of come out of your shell to, to be willing to share some of that stuff? Or is that something that came pretty naturally to you? Uh, I think just based on, so I'm about to turn 33 tomorrow, actually. Hey, I'll, I'll be there a couple weeks after you, actually. Nice. Uh, so I think we grew up on the beginning of the millennial trend where social media became a norm it started like while I was in college I was on Facebook all that yep. stuff so it's been very normal for me to share things on there and I think it's just slowly uh been more and more of something that I did over the years and then obviously coming to the team uh it was just much more people wanted to see it much more um it wasn't just my friends uh so it's been pretty easy I haven't felt like I'm I'm putting myself out there to exposure that's made me super uncomfortable i should not read the comments sometimes that's, <laughs> that's true I'm about learned. everything on social media right? right i mean that's definitely a difference being more in the public eye and having just such a much wider follower base that don't know me personally or might have just joined i forget that everyone doesn't know me and doesn't know my whole story and some people don't have perspective on things and my personal pages are pretty good people are 99 percent of people are awesome um, they just have legitimate questions about the demo, about my background, et cetera. You get on Thunderbird stuff or interviews I've done or whatever it is on other pages on YouTube or Twitter. Twitter's the worst. Um, <laughs> Facebook isn't great either, I'll say. You just, the comments sometimes you're yeah. just like, what motivated <laughs> Who you says to, that? Yeah. You're right? Like, would you yeah. say that to a person on the Never. street? Never. Never. <laughs> So it's, it's just a, a strange thing that our culture uh, has right now where people can sit at home and, and do that. But I mean, I think the benefits in this job of social media far, far outweigh uh, those um, few naysayers, but it, it definitely has been something to get used to for sure. Yeah. Um, I'll switch gears. So two years ago, the year before you were on the team, Thunderbirds came to town and I got to actually have the incredible honor, once in a lifetime experience, most likely of flying with one of your pilots. It was Eric Gorney at the time. Nice. Um, and first of all, very important question. I didn't pass out and I only threw up right after we landed. So does that count as me making it through or did I, did yeah. I throw up on yeah. the flight? No, you're good. You okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Wheels were on the ground. We're good to go. Um, and people have always asked me, you know, describe the experience. It's one of the few things, especially as someone who talks for a living that I just can't really put into words. How, how do you describe to, to friends, to family, what those physical sensations are. I mean, it's an yeah. entirely different feeling in your body than I've ever had doing anything else. Yeah, it's it's still hard to put into words. G's are very hard to explain. Yeah. And especially in my profile, I pull a lot of G's and you experience some of the same maneuvers, the pull-up for vertical rolls, the max turn. Like, it's very uncomfortable. You do get used to it. So I think your first experience that you had and like my first experience going to like the centrifuge, which if you remember the movie Armageddon, yeah. like spinning on the end uh, for astronaut training, that thing is a torture device. Oh boy. But those first few times that you do it, it's, you just don't know what to expect. You don't know like how to brace your body for it. You're like, am I dying right now? What is happening? I'm about to go to sleep. This is insane. Um, it's just a lot of pressure, right? Like 
people ask me a lot about working out and maneuvers and how to prepare for them and stuff. And for anyone that lifts heavy weights, I, I compare it to if you like on a really heavy squat and you get to the very bottom and like all that pressure is on your body and you're like bracing your core and you're like, Oh boy, I have to stand back up. I don't know if I can do it. That like pressure in your entire body and strain that you have trying to stand back up uh, right at the very bottom is similar to G's which you just continue to hold for like 30 <laughs> Most seconds. Most people aren't operating multi-million dollar aircraft at the time too that it, are doing those squats. Right. So I think just the physical feel in the body, that's like the closest I can come to for someone who yeah. has never experienced it. But I think most people have experienced some sort of G's. People have ridden rides at the fair, like the Tilt-A-Whirl or what, the Scrambler or whatever, where you get like squished yeah. to the side or the Gravitron where you get stuck to the wall. Um, it's like that, but it's just down into your, the seat. So from your head down towards your feet. So it's, it's a not very pleasant feeling. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't, but I'm glad I experienced it. Um, you mentioned, I'm curious cause you mentioned you guys had to take some, some downtime at the beginning of the pandemic. And I've heard you say that the G tolerance, that that's something you have to kind of train and have to kind of keep it a certain level. Did that affect anything coming back into the jets or that was a short enough time that you know, you're not away from the plane too long, but can you notice a difference if you oh, yeah. own and then get back in and do some of that? Yeah, definitely. If you are flying every day, it, it's not easy, but it gets to the point where you're not really concerned about it. It's just a secondary thing. You automatically start G straining. You've done this a hundred times. You're like, okay, that felt fine. Um, you don't fly for a week maybe or two weeks. And I'm, I'm not smart enough on the physiology of like what actually happens with your body, but I swear your tolerance goes down and we recognize that when we come back. So we'll kind of ease back into training. We'll do uh, a G exercise when we first get into the airspace. So we'll do a 90 degree turn and then 180 degree turn at higher altitude. It's kind of like warm your body back up. Be like, how am I feeling today? Uh, good to go before I'm just down at 200 feet doing, you know, a nine G turns. That's very close to the ground. So we all realize that the G tolerance can definitely decrease when you are out of practice. That's at least comforting to hear <laughs> that, that you guys are just like superhuman people up there, even nope. though you are to some degree. It's acquired for sure. Yeah. Um, I'd love to finish with a couple uh, just kind of quick fun questions, if you don't sure. mind, uh, since you've been very kind with the time. What is um, something that no one would ever guess about you? Something that no one would ever guess you either have a skill or maybe something that you're terrible at for someone who's, who's cool. so good at so many things, it seems. I'm terrible at sports like like ball sports huh, like okay volleyball basketball people always think i should play basketball because i'm 5'10 you can't tell because i'm sitting down so i'm tall but i'm my hand-eye coordination is not good when it comes to that although flying requires hand-eye coordination yeah, i was gonna say that clearly worked uh, out in some degree. yeah my sport growing up for 12 years was figure skating huh yeah people are always shocked by that is that where the spinning you just are very comfortable with, I guess? Probably. I yeah. mean, I guess. Because people would ask me when I was a figure skater, they're like, how do you spin like that and not get dizzy? I was like, oh, you just get used to it. It, it is the same in the aircraft, for sure. Probably not a lot of people that have translated figure skating into fighter jet flying. Though, no, like I may be the jet. only one. That'd be interesting. <laughs> no, we should do some research <laughs> on that. Um, outside of flying, I know you're a very outdoorsy person. What is it about climbing, hiking, things like that that you enjoy so much? Yeah, I mean, I love that stuff so much. And I miss it right now because my yeah. schedule takes a lot of time for air shows, obviously. So I'm hoping to get back to some more bigger trips uh, after the team. But I think it's the outdoor beauty is obvious to anyone who's ever done it. Like it's just breathtaking and it's so 
calming and serene out there. Like the wake up on an alpine morning, even though it's so early out, it's like 2 a.m. You've never slept all the night before because you're stressed out and you're sleeping at altitude. But like you're going up this mountain and the sun's coming up. Like the views I've seen there, hands down, have been the best ever. I mean, I've seen some cool views from the cockpit for sure. But the views on the side of a mountain at sunrise are, are the best that I've ever seen. So there's that part of it. But then there's also the the part of me that likes endurance sports and like pushing my body and just embracing the suck <laughs> that comes with, you know, a, a long day of a lot of altitude gain and just the hours of this is uncomfortable and this is hard. That's rewarded with standing on top of a mountain or reaching the top of a wall and it's just challenging mentally, the grind to get through that and physically. And then you meet the coolest people out there doing that too. They're just like such a mix of everyone from your like dirtbag climber who lives in their car and like barely scrapes together money to buy their new climbing shoes to someone that has a PhD that just loves to be outside. And you like end up on a rope team with both of those people at the same time. It's, it's just cool. I love every part of it. <laughs> That's well said. Um, Milwaukee, or or maybe the the America Strong things, might be the actual answer to this. But what was one of the coolest experiences you've gotten to have so far as part of the team? Because I know last year with the full schedule included Super Bowls, Daytona 500, yeah. all all kinds of amazing things. Oh, there's so many. Uh, I mean, the Super Bowl will definitely stick in my memory because I was brand new to the team, and that was like our first event as the 2019 team. Like it's a heck of a kickoff. Yeah, no pun intended. Right. Like we came together a week before that was like the first time we started practicing with all six of us flying formation. So it was very stressful because I was very new to it and not very good at it yet. Um, and then just the audience that you have is unsurpassed. But America Strong has been, I think, way more rewarding and something that we will always remember and really a thing that our team will leave as a legacy in the Thunderbird history that uh, we didn't really expect. Like, I think we took something that was very negative that's going on right now, and this positive thing came out of it. And to fly over New York City in formation, I mean, I think a lot of people that aren't into aviation don't really understand how complex that airspace is and how busy it is with just all the airports that are there and the city and the restrictions and all the traffic outside of commercial aviation, the helicopters, like the tall buildings. It's insane. Um, to fly you know, over the Hudson and look through the formation and see the Brooklyn Bridge and see Manhattan. And it was incredible, surreal. Something we'll never get to do again. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Very few teams will ever get to do that. And you guys did for sure. Um, just a couple more here. I'm sure you get the Top Gun question a lot, especially with oh, yeah. the new version of the movie coming out. What is, maybe not Top Gun, but what is a, a movie or a depiction television show of the Air Force, of the military that actually gets something right? What's one thing that you're like, oh, that's pretty spot on. They know what they're talking about. Or oh, one that's man. just horribly off base. I don't know if there's any that quite get it right. <laughs> Good job, I, Hollywood. <laughs> I think, I mean, because people view fighter pilots with this cool factor, like Top Gun portrays, right? The aviators, shirtless volleyball, all of that. Um, so I think that's what attracts them to putting us in movies. Uh, the job is glamorous sometimes. Um, but really when it comes down to like the day-to-day -day operations of what happens in the cockpit and how we brief and the amount of time we take to debrief and like dissect every little mistake we made, people will get really bored really fast watching us do that. Um, 
So I don't think they ever get it a hundred percent right, but this is cliche, but I really did like Top Gun growing up and it is definitely the most entertaining um, movie when it comes to portraying fighter pilots in general, obviously it's Navy, but um, no, (laughs) I am definitely excited to see, to see the new one. I've gotten asked quite a bit about it and I'm shamelessly excited to see the new one when it comes out. Um, It's still even just like, listening to danger zone and watching that movie still gets me excited oh absolutely it's not an accurate portrayal i'm like this is awesome (laughs) uh i won't even ask you a blue angels question i I said i wouldn't do that to you (laughs) i'll uh i'll end with this though have you thought about what's next have you thought about after this this tour because it's only two years right that you get to be in the thunderbird so after this season what will you do next where do you go from here yeah so i guess this is as good a time as any to talk about this so the decision was recently made to freeze this year's team for next year. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. So, I mean, with, with everything that's gone on this year, uh, we don't know how many shows we'll end up doing. We still, I mean, if anyone looks at our schedule on the Air Force Thunderbirds website, it's like rapidly ticking down. I think everything like through July is canceled as of right now. Um, so the big thing with it only being two years is that there's a lot of turnover. So half of the pilots are leaving every year and, the second year people are fully responsible as instructors to train the new people. And we just didn't think that our guys that are new this year were getting enough experience with the different types of show sites, the different high altitude shows, the ones that have a mountain behind them, the weird show lines that are shortened on one end because there's something we can't fly over. There's every show site has its challenges. Milwaukee has super big towers. I remember that from that show site specifically over water shows can be disorienting, whatever it is. They just haven't gained that experience and they probably won't this season um, to really hand the team off uh, as them as instructors. And it's not a hit on them at all. It's just, it's just how it's been this season. Um, So we're all going to stay where we are, which will be, will be interesting. This is such a non, non non-standard year that I think normally doing three years would be very hard because you're gone so much you're away from your family so much, just the fatigue of traveling constantly, but this is almost like a break in the middle. So I think we'll go into the third year being you know, more prepared for it than um, you normally would after, after being so fatigued after two years. But yeah, That's so you'll see me as Thunderbird 5 next year as well. well. Great. That's wonderful for all of us here in Wisconsin that, that love watching you and love supporting you. Thank you so much for all the time, Michelle, and Absolutely. wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you once again to Major Curran and the Air Force for giving us so much time. And a big thank you to two people that you don't hear from behind the scenes, Dave Machuda and Sarah Smith, who do so much to make Definitely Milwaukee happen. That goes for the Fox 6 Investigators podcast as well, Open Record, and they're doing episodes during the coronavirus pandemic. You can find those on your favorite podcast platform, and we do ask that you leave a rating and a review for Definitely Milwaukee or Open Record, as that really helps us keep things going here. And a reminder, you can find the latest episodes anytime as well on our website, fox6now.com.